Our scripture reading uh, for this morning comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Uh, and so you can follow along in the, uh, the printout, or it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Okay, so beginning in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, uh, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and brothers, all the Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Thank you, Luke, and good morning, everyone. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. I thought I'd start this morning with a little poll. Uh, Who here is an optimist? Optimist, nice, owning it. Uh, What about the pessimists in the house? Uh, Nice, interesting, learning about some of you. I think I would put my hand up here, I think. Should Christians be optimists or pessimists? 
Uh, you might be thankful to know I'm not about to cast judgment on about half the church now. I don't think that's really a question the Bible asks, at least in a straightforward way. But it does raise the issue, what should we expect on the journey home with Jesus? Is it a journey of triumph, where the joy of being saved leads to a life praising God? Or is it a journey of suffering, of giving up your preferences in, in order to honour Jesus, of taking up your cross daily and following him? Well, hopefully you can see there's truth on both sides. But that question of expectations is an important one because too many people have been hurt by an overly simplistic answer either way. Too many people have been turned away from churches because of the dirge-like solemnness. At the same time, many have been hoodwinked by a superficially happy version of Christianity. Uh, One of my highlights as a musician was getting to go to the States and working with some songwriters there, learning how to write better songs for churches from some professionals. Uh, I think of a man I met on that trip, brilliant musician, lovely guy. Uh, He grew up playing praise and worship music in big churches, but had long since given up on his faith. And one day we were workshopping a song and it had a lyric about joy and we're talking about it. And he said, I just never got that. that. The intense happiness expressed in the songs at church really jarred with his experience of life. I just never got that joy thing. What should we expect on the journey home? As you hear those different extremes... Which do you think you're more likely to struggle with yourself? Well, the passage we just heard from Ezra 3 doesn't let me give you a glossy sales pitch about life with Jesus. But it doesn't let me say to you now to grit your teeth and bear it either. And that's great news for all of us. Lives changed by God's grace are full of real joy but not without tears. This is great news for Ezra's first readers. This small community of God's people rebuilding the once great Jerusalem. Last week we heard that pivotal moment back in 538 BC where after decades of terrible exile, the new king on the block, Cyrus of Persia, allowed this religious minority to go home and rebuild their temple. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see God leading an exodus through Cyrus. And now they're home. But it's not really home yet. They're living in rubble. You could imagine that after the initial excitement of those early years, discouragement could have set in. They had their issues for sure. You could imagine how it would have been tempting for them to give up on trying to be faithful to their God and just get comfortable as subjects of the Persian Empire. That's why they needed Ezra 3. And so do we. So we can have right expectations about life on the way home and not give in to discouragement. So point one on your leaflets, the joy of coming to God on God's terms. Verse one picks up 
in a momentous time for God's people in the seventh month. Historically, this was part of the calendar with two major holidays. It was a month of sacrifice where offerings were made for the sins of the people. And more than that, it's the first time this kind of festive season has rolled around back in the promised land. These returned exiles had known many years away from this place under God's judgment. Many years not being able to celebrate. But now they were back. Things weren't all fixed. There was still no temple. But they were able to gather as one, just as their ancestors had done in the great moments of their history. We might compare it, at least in part, to December in this part of the world. You know, a time of public holidays and celebrations that really has its own feel. Uh, Maybe it's a feeling of stress of all the events, but... Hopefully, um, for many, there's also joy in time with family, enjoying the good things of life. Um, I don't know if this counts, but Aisha and I have started an annual tradition uh, of watching as many corny Christmas movies as we can and playing Christmas bingo. Uh, Whoever guesses the most cliches wins. You know, these traditions and that feel of this time of year... And for Christians, that's all attached to gathering together and remembering the incredible gift of God sending his son. For those who have been separated from loved ones through COVID, imagine how that first Christmas back together, whenever that is, will feel. That might give us a sense of how these faithful returnees might have felt as they gathered as one in the holy city again. And what they choose to do first might be surprising to us. Verse 2, Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. We've got Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, who, if he's not already, will soon be governor of the people. And it's worth noting that Zerubbabel is in the line of none other than King David. So we have big expectations for what these two key leaders are going to do in this moment. And what they do first is make sure that sacrifices can be offered to God on behalf of the people. On whatever was left of that first site of the temple, the place that God had chosen. Leviticus chapter 1 tells us that burnt offerings were about making atonement for sin. God, in his mercy, gave his people a very concrete way of knowing that their sins were paid for in blood, but not their own. These leaders knew that sacrifice has to come first. If an unholy bunch of exiles are going to come before the holy God of the universe, they can't just bowl up as if everything's fine. They need to come to God on his own terms. And praise God, those terms are generous. As you read through Ezra 3, it seems like the narrator is at pains to point out that they really did come God's way. 
verse 2, they made offerings in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses. Verse 4, they celebrated the festival in accordance with what was written. And this would have attracted some negative attention, as verse 3 implies, but it was worth facing their fear of the people around them because forgiveness from the God of the universe is on the table. In his love for sinful human beings, God made a way for them to draw near to him. And that means he gets to say what that way is. Sometimes we might want to say that everything's good between me and God because I've decided that it is. Or because I've done enough that he should be happy with me. But as our creator, as the wronged party in the relationship, it's up to God to offer the terms of peace if he wants to. And he does. Those sacrifices, participating in them, just like God outlined in the Old Testament, was the way that the people in Ezra said yes to this generous offer of forgiveness. On this side of the cross of Jesus, sacrifice looks different, but it still comes first. We get to enjoy today what those animal sacrifices pointed to. Just as an ancient Israelite would put their hand on the head of the animal they were about to sacrifice, as if to say, all the guilt of my sin is going on to you instead of me, Jesus, our great high priest, says, put your hand out and reach towards my cross and say, here is my sin, I leave it here. And the scars on the risen Jesus' hands and feet tell us just how sure that forgiveness is. What incredible terms of peace. A completely blank slate before the holy God just for accepting that gift. And just as it did in Ezra, coming to God on God's terms like that always leads to celebration. Verse 4, then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles. This feast of the seventh month started way back after the exodus as a way of remembering how those freed slaves lived in tents or tabernacles in the wilderness. And God looked after them. And so every year, God's people were told to gather and to camp out for a week as sacrifices are being made each day with the smell of meat cooking on the barbecue, rejoicing together in the God who always looks after his people. If you're a follower of Jesus, can you look back at particular times for you where you've just been really conscious of the joy of being one of God's people? Imagine how profound it would have been for those returnees camping out in Jerusalem for the first time in decades. You would have felt a bit like those original freed slaves in the wilderness. There's still lots to fear, but we know that God is looking after us, just like he did back then. God's Old Testament people knew how to celebrate, and I wonder, is that something we're in danger of losing? 
even though we have so much more to celebrate today, in our busyness, in our desire to be dutiful, let's be diligent not to lose the joy of being God's people, of regularly getting together with thankful and glad hearts over meals and maybe even campouts. Whatever helps us remember the goodness of what Jesus has done for us. That palpable joy of of coming to God in God's way leaves us with, I think, at least two challenges. First, let's take note of the order of events here. Sacrifice before building. Before we can do anything for God, if that's even a helpful phrase, We need God to do everything for us. Coming to God on his terms does not mean getting your act together before you come to him. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you're here today with baggage that you know is coming between you and your God, please know that you can never work that off. Leave it at the cross of Jesus today. And God will never hold it against you. That's what he says. As we seek to hold on to our joy in being God's people, remembering that sacrifice comes first is so important. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can start out with good intentions and think, you know, I'm really keen to put my hand up to serve because I'm, I'm thankful for what Jesus has done for me. I want other people to know him too. But then in the crunch of actually doing stuff, of stacking chairs and doing dishes, I can start to get a bit grumpy and like I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. I need to be reminded, God doesn't need me. He invites me to be his child by his grace. Sacrifice first. That frees me to serve with joy. And second, Ezra 3 challenges us to stay humble and come to Jesus on his terms. Because that's where the real joy is found. Jesus doesn't ask us to sacrifice animals. The significance of those rituals is found in him. But he does ask us to come to him on his own terms as we meet him in the Bible. That doesn't mean following perfectly a set of Christian rules. But it does mean coming to Jesus as both Saviour and Lord. You can't say to Jesus, I'll take my ticket to heaven, but I don't want to know you. Because trusting in him is the way to heaven. Now, we might not be so bold as to say something like that to Jesus. But are there more subtle ways in which we tell Jesus to come to us on our terms? We can expect following Jesus his way to be full of joy because he is the God of second chances. Point two, there's palpable excitement in the air as the people prepare to start building the temple. In verse seven, they do exactly what David did in better days. They negotiate with their wealthy neighbors for cedar. And verse eight tells us they build the temple in the same time of year that Solomon did. In the second month, this deep and conscious connection with the first temple reminds us of all that it meant. We can look back to 1 Kings 8 where it tells us what that temple was all about. It tells us it was where the infinite God who heaven can't contain 
chose to be present. It tells us it was a place of forgiveness, a place for people of all nations, and the place that confirmed God's promise to set a king over his people forever. The parallels between the first and second temples makes it crystal clear that the same God is acting for the same purpose. But what's amazing is that he's doing it all again after all that's happened, all the abuses of that first temple over the centuries, the worship of stars and even the sacrifice of children that happened in the first temple under corrupt kings that disgraced God's name. The hypocrisy of those who said, it doesn't matter how we live, we've got the temple. That means God has to be on our side. After all that, God still wants to live with his people. Can you think of a way in your life where a long-term relationship has been enriched because you made it through a conflict together? And worked through it. If it's a source of joy and relief when a fellow sinner says, let's start over, how much more wonder is found with our Creator, who has never contributed anything wrong to the relationship and yet still offers chance after chance after chance? So the song of celebration in verse 11 is spot on. He is good and his faithful love towards Israel endures forever. It's a lyric that says it all and it says even more when we think about all the times God's people have sung that over the years. It's, it appears in four psalms. It was sung when David first appointed singers to praise God in Jerusalem They sang it when the glory of the Lord came and filled the first temple. These words get more profound over time. As through thick and thin, God shows that he is good. His faithful love for his people never ends. They're still singing it. It's still true. And the very existence of a new temple foundation shows that God is still completely committed to that promise of a king in David's line. Even more than that, verse 10 points out the way that they sang was exactly as King David taught them to. They haven't seen the finished result yet, but they know enough to say that that hope of a forever king is still alive. Now, if the laying of this little foundation was concrete evidence, pun intended, of God's commitment to meeting with his people, and if that was worth bursting out in song for, how much more do we have to rejoice in today? Because God has sent that king, that great-grandchild of Zerubbabel, Jesus, son of David, God with us in the flesh. We don't see the finished results yet either. King Jesus hasn't yet returned to put everything right. But we've seen enough to know that hope is real because second chances are very real. So the challenge under this heading is to practice rejoicing. Exercise your ability to wonder. Now, some personality types will have no trouble expressing emotion For others of us, the idea of being told to show joy is already sending you cringing. 
Either way, let's remember, we're not, we're not talking about pretend happiness. We're talking about the deep 3D joy of knowing the good and faithful God of Ezra. And I imagine that will express itself very differently for each of us. Something that strikes me from these verses is how deliberate and organized this amazing praise was on the one hand. The musicians were set up, the priests were wearing the right things, but also how heartfelt, the deafening noise of a great shout that can't be manufactured. What could this exercising of wonder and joy look like for you? Do you need to organize a bit more time in your week to just think about what God's done for you? Because it takes time for that to sink into your heart in the noise of life. Do you need to put some disciplines in place about the words that you use? Or is it thinking about what it might look like for you in your personality to express joy and thanks in a real, genuine way? Ezra 3 gives us a beautiful portrait of a bunch of people just blown away by God's grace to them, that he would give them another chance. What I love about the Bible, and Ezra in particular though, is that it doesn't present the human condition as a cartoon. It's not simple because life isn't simple. And so mixed with the joy, there's tears. Point three. This day of festivities takes a bit of a twist in verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. What a cacophony of human emotion that must have been. And What was it about the sight of that new foundation that made the elder statesmen cry? Well, verse 12 tells us that they saw the first temple, the temple that David's son Solomon built, laden with gold, the world's best sculpting, that symbol of God's undying love for Israel. Imagine having seen all that, standing back in this place and hearing those old words, his love endures forever. And knowing that that's true, but you just see a slab among the rubble. It's not done, and when it is, it won't be as great as Solomon's. And maybe, saddest of all, where is the son of David now? There's Zerubbabel serving a foreign king as governor. And so you weep. Now, it's possible that this older generation was, you know, just missing their glory days. But in the context of a book about God coming through on his promises, with the smell of burnt offerings still hanging in the air, I think it's more likely that we're supposed to see something very appropriate about this response. And could it be that these community leaders are struck by godly grief as they, more than anyone else, get just how long the road ahead is. Could it be as they remember God's love to Israel, they remember what he is saving them from and they mourn over all the human evil out there and in here that led to the demolition of that first temple that they saw, the humiliation of God's city. 
And yes, God forgives that sin. But the consequences of that God-dishonoring behavior are right in front of their eyes. Why does it have to be this way? Lives changed by God's grace are full of joy, but not without their tears. Tears of yearning for everything to be put right. It would be another 500 years until finally the son of David walks into Jerusalem as its king. And Jesus knew how to rejoice, eating and drinking with the people he came to save. And he knew how to weep over sin and its consequences at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. That's our king. Unlike those elders in Ezra, we look back to the finished work of that king on the cross, not forward. We have even more evidence of God's unending love. And yet, like them, we're still on the journey home. Living between the empty tomb and the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns. When we will be with him physically and literally. Our king teaches us to rejoice and to grieve on the road to that home with him. The joy of being saved, the fun of genuine relationships with each other, the absolute thrill of getting to see other people get to know Jesus. But with that, the grief over sin, separation and death. These things that will be no more when Jesus returns and his kingdom, which we see the beginnings of today, is fully realized. Knowing this Jesus means that we can face reality. We don't have to play down the great moments. We don't have to play up the low moments. The mixed cacophony of Ezra 3 is a portrait of life on the journey home. As we think especially of those elders in light of where we stand, I think it should challenge us to cultivate godly sorrow. When was the last time you grieved over your own capacity for sin? I've heard it said that as you grow in Christian maturity, the cross gets bigger and bigger in your life. The more you appreciate the cross, the more you see the heights of God's love but also the depths of our sin. Not as some kind of cosmic guilt trip, but so that we can be overwhelmed with thankfulness, knowing that Jesus willingly paid it all. Godly grief always drives us to that place where our forgiveness is sure. And godly sorrow also yearns for the work to be done. As you look around and you see so many in the world living like their creator doesn't exist, That ought to pull at our heartstrings. As we live with the consequences of human sin in our world, pain, injustice, loneliness, and as we experience the terrible separation that comes with death, it's right to weep. And these things should not be. And one day, they won't. Can I say I'm thankful to be part of a church family that gets that. Um, I love the way that Kelly works so hard to choose songs that advocate for a whole range of emotions that are part of the Christian life. And actually, I was really hit by this last Sunday. 
uh, when we prayed with great joy for some of the new babies in our congregation, but also with sadness as we prayed for a dear family who have lost a loved one. Joy, wonder, and tears. So what should we expect? I hope you've been hit by the fairly rich emotional life of being a child of God. Whatever your personality, let's invest in bringing our emotions under Jesus' good lordship. And practically, as we read the Bible, let's ask, what emotional response does this part of God's word ask me for? And as we go about life feeling the ups and downs, let's name what we feel and ask, is this a response that Jesus would challenge me on? Or is he in it with me? If you're here exploring the claims of Christianity, I hope you can see that the Bible presents a viable alternative to escaping the pain or of putting on a happy face or of denying the good pleasures of life in some kind of pious way. Knowing the God of the Bible means I can face reality knowing that the joy and the tears mean something. And that means we can expect to celebrate as we walk with Jesus towards the new Jerusalem. We can wake up each morning with the brightness of a clean conscience before God, because he's the God of second chances. We can invest time enjoying being God's people together. We can expect great fun and, dare I say, hard work next year as we work towards two healthy churches, one in Tonsley, a new chapter here at CLG, Lots of gospel adventures to be had. And like we see in Ezra, some of those great high points in life happen when we do God's work together. And for us, it's not with bricks, but with words and people. And we can expect a measure of tears as well. As we live in this broken world, as we cause each other pain as fellow forgiven sinners as dear brothers and sisters go home to be with the Lord. Joy, tears, and always hope. Because God is good, and his faithful love towards his people never ends. Amen.